1: To me, the real, quote-unquote, elixir for fear is love and reassurance. Wherever we got hurt, the brain designed to predict and protect is now going to be on the lookout for that same event to try and avoid it. That's just the bubble of fear. But if we can recognize, oh, okay, well, what I went through is what I went through. That's got nothing to do with today, and that event likely will never be repeated again, And so for that reason, perhaps I can bring more love and compassion to the part of me that was hurt, but simultaneously recognize through trust that that's not something for me to be defined by anymore. And then the fear itself starts to dissipate.
2: Hello and welcome to the Not Perfect podcast. I'm your host, Poppy Jamie, the founder of award winning mindfulness app, Happy Not Perfect. And this show is about upgrading our mind, our energy, and our understanding of how we can live life to our fullest potential. Quick question Do you sleep well? Before we get into this interview with Peter Crone, who is profound and inspirational, I quickly want to tell you about something I've been taking for a while now to help me sleep and it's been really effective. It's from a brand called Oto, a CBD brand, and I've honestly spent years trying so many different CBD products and then I found Oto. I am passionate about natural supplements, and since I have been trying Oto Sleep Drops and journaling every night, I've noticed a big change in the quality and length of my sleep. Oto Sleep Drops have a CBD strength guarantee, delivering 50 milligrams with every dose, which, for those of you who know about CBD, is a great strength. And very rarely do you find this quality in CBD products over your average counter. And this is actually an important note to make on CBD in general. Really look to see the strength of your CBD product before you buy them. As you guys might know, I only like to partner with brands I actually use and rate highly. And Oto is one of them. So if you are looking for a natural way to help you sleep, Please check out Oto CBD. The brand has an impressive team of scientists behind it and was originally founded by a family, which I love. They're passionate about delivering high-quality products. So do check out the show notes, and they've very kindly offered not-perfect listeners 10% off. So use the discount code POPPY. More details below. Gosh, I'm excited for you to listen to this interview today. Let's crack into it. Today I'm interviewing a man whose work I've been following for the past three years or more, and it has had a profound impact on me, along with millions of people around the world. There are those people in life who are able to sum up seemingly complex ideas about what it means to be human and the anxieties we all face, and finally make it sound simple. You have that, aha, yes, that's me moment, I'm not alone. I love those moments because within them, we remember how similar we are and how none of us are alone in the challenges we face. My guest, Peter Crone, also known as the mind architect is this person. He verges on the magical in all honesty, not because his work is magic, it's scientific and spiritual. The product he shares is freedom. And you may be thinking, how on earth can someone sell freedom? Well, in today's talk, it'll become very clear.
1: Wow. Magical. Let's see what we can do with magical today. Thank you so much. Very humbled by your words.
2: What's a favorite quote and why?
1: I think the quote that I've usually defaulted to, and it's on the top of my website or somewhere on my website, is by Marcel Proust. And he says that the journey of true discovery lies not in finding new lands, but in looking through new eyes. So there's this misnomer, I think, that most humans are under an impression that the life we're looking for is is somewhere out there. And my assertion is, and it's really the cornerstone of my work, is to help people understand that in fact, if we are to discover new lands or to find a new life, then it's uh, by virtue of a new perspective, by looking through new eyes. So. That, that quote, when I read that, that really hit me and it just so resonated with the work that I do for people. I'm not so much a solution guy. I'm really a di- dissolution guy. I don't solve problems. I dissolve them is what I tell people uh, to help them, as I said, look through new eyes. And with that, you get an entirely new world of possibility available to you.
2: I do feel like we've become this solution-addicted society where we're all looking for this kind of quick fix. And you just very eloquently remind people of, I guess, like the truth that is around rather than giving these kind of quick fix solutions.
1: Yeah, I think it's human, right? Like if we're in a state of suffering, disease, disharmony, discontent, like even the wording, disease, disharmony, dis means the absence of like, so in the absence of something, it's only common sensical that we would try to find something but to me that's a vicious cycle where we're reinforcing the belief of lack in the first place so if we can remove the constraint that has us be under the impression that there's something missing then we stumble upon usually effortlessly that which we were looking for in the first place which invariably is a sense of joy peace happiness or as you mentioned my main product freedom
2: what's a life lesson you've been reminded of recently
1: one of the things that was really pivotal in my own journey, if we're gonna call it an awakening of sorts, happened by virtue of a girl I was in love with or I was dating who left me. And I sort of had that desperate men doing desperate things revelation where there was nothing else to discover other than the fact that I was being driven by a very deep fear of loss because my parents had died at a young age. So that sort of revelatory process really introduced me to the notion and the truth that life is uncertainty. That's its nature. We don't know what's going to happen. And they were the three words that were pivotal in my own liberation was realizing I had a series of questions, this constant rumination about, you know, am I gonna see her again? Where is she? Is she dating someone else? Will I ever find love like that again? All of these very stereotypical, and for that reason, you know, we bring compassion to those human concerns. But when I realized or or it came to me, you know, I was really the beneficiary of insight. I got an answer to all the questions simultaneously, which is, I don't know. I, I just don't know. I don't know where she is. I don't know if she'll come back. I don't know if she's with someone else. I don't know if I'll find love like that again. And it was so liberating because I realized, one, that's the truth. And then two, for the first time in my life, I was totally okay with it. At that moment, I stopped trying to figure it all out. This freedom cascaded through my body like I'd never experienced before. And it was just the quintessential experience of total peace. There was trust that, okay, I don't need to know what's going to happen and I'm going to be a beneficiary of life and things are going to unfold in a way that I can't currently see. Leaning into trust.
2: Leaning into trust. And we'll come on to that in much more detail but lastly, how do you define happiness? And usually when I ask this, the guest doesn't have a viral quote on happiness. Um, <laughs> but, as, <laughs> but as you do, I'm, I'm more excited to ask you, um, how do you define happiness and why did you define it as you did?
1: So happiness, my quote is, the true happiness is the absence of the search for happiness. So what that what that reference for me is, without getting too quantum, it's the absence of time, right? So true happiness is the dissolution of the pursuit of trying to get somewhere else. What it really is speaking to is that I'm saying I'm okay where I am. It is the absence of the search for happiness. Because if I'm searching for something, what I'm actually subtly reinforcing, and oftentimes not very subtly at all, is the fact that I'm dis- I have discontent, dis-ease, dissatisfaction with where I am. And so we're under the impression that the life I want is in the future, all of which is totally fine and human, there's no judgment. But then it it leads to the anxieties, the worries, the striving, the fears, the controls, the figuring out all of the things that I would assert create exhaustion for people. And that's not to in any way say that we should rest on our laurels and just say that oh my life is perfect. I never use that word. I don't like it. It's subjective. Life is the way it is, and for a lot of people right now, the way that life is is incredibly challenging. It's incredibly dissatisfying for where they're at, and they have a, you know, a fair share of trials and tribulations by virtue of what's been going on certainly recently. So it's not by any means to dismiss the difficulties that people have, but it is to point to the fact that the degree to which we can be in harmony with what's actually happening in our life is the degree to which we don't have suffering. There are things to handle, there's stuff to do that is in the behavioral domain. But suffering is the resistance that a human being has to their circumstance. Circumstance is always circumstance. Sometimes things go away and oftentimes they don't, but it is nonetheless circumstance. Suffering, however, once you have the awareness, is optional. So there's the challenge external, the things that we have to handle, but then there is a psychological perspective upon that which creates suffering. So true happiness is the absence of trying to resist the way things are. And then I would add, while still remaining committed to what it is that you want. So I'm very creative. I'm prolifically productive in the way that I like have ideas of things that I want to do, but it's not as a cure-all to the fact that I'm unhappy now. It's not like I'm under the impression my life is going to be wonderful in the future as an antidote to the fact that it's not now. It's like, yes, I am where I am, and I, in my term, I say I have an intimate relationship with reality. It is the way it is, and the things that are in my control, then I have some responsibility to overcome, and I have domain over, and the things that I don't, that's where we go back to trust and some sort of acceptance. So true happiness is the absence of the search for happiness.
2: I love that. It sums up so much, and it's so nice to have an explanation because I think there is so much nuance, as you just uh, described. And there is so much nuance in, in general, um, which often social media doesn't allow for. And one of the nuances I did find is, you, know, you are a very powerful speaker on manifestation, on manifesting, but also at the same time, you're a powerful speaker on unattachment. And you just spoke about that too, about how those two can fit in harmony of wanting your wildest dreams to come true, but at the same time being in harmony where you are.
1: Seems counterintuitive, doesn't it? seems like a little bit <laughs> of a paradox.
2: <laughs> right.
1: Yeah. It's Again, it speaks to time. And this is something that I did a little workshop on recently about how psychologically most people spend the majority of their attention in either past-based thoughts or future-based thoughts, which actually compromises their power to be where they are and have some sort of impact on their life now. You know, I use sports as an analogy a lot because I work with so many professional athletes. But if, you know, somebody like a baseball player is up at the plate facing a pitcher, but he's concerned about the fact that last time he faced the same guy, maybe a month, six, seven weeks ago, he didn't do so well, then he's already put himself into a degree of fear and concern which both psychologically, physiologically, and emotionally, he's now compromised as an athlete. Therefore, he's self-fulfilling on the concern that is based in history. right? So there's no power there. I, I can't right now sitting here back my car out of the garage because I'm not there. But that's sort of how people live their lives. They're trying to control aspects that are either done because it's their history or have yet to happen because it's a projection of a future As again, I say, you know, I use a lot of quotes, I say most people are worried about a bad future that hasn't happened yet. And so then they're in a state of anxiety and apprehension and concern and fear over their own projection, meaning they're actually being upset by their own imagination, which when you really get it is, it's kind of comical. Obviously it warrants some compassion. It's very human. The brain is designed to predict and protect. But when you see it for what it is, it's like, wow, no wonder people need to take medication. Well, it's not medication, it's drugs. Um, or alcohol, or self-medication, because they're in this perpetual state of anxiety, not realizing that it's their own brain that's creating the future event that they're actually worried about. So, once we at least get out of that realm and we start focusing on where we are, we find harmony. It's sort of it's a clean slate. It is the way it is. Okay, great. Now, what do you want to create? See, most people don't create a life that they want. They're in reaction to, to a life they don't want. And so there's very little power there. So like people go to the gym because they don't want to be overweight, but that's a powerless approach. You're actually focusing on the aspects of your life you don't want, and you're now in resistance to them and invariably berating yourself when you don't get the results. So now you've got a lot of judgment, which impacts someone's self-worth. When in, their self-worth is diminished, they're going to have less confidence to deal with life. So even though it does seem like an oxymoron or a paradox, I hope people understand that I, you know, it is entirely possible and it's actually the only powerful way to live life, which is I am where I am and that's precisely where I'm meant to be. And as a co-creator in life, I have the opportunity to use my, my imagination for something that I am inspired by, that I'm passionate about versus being in conflict with my history, which, you know, Uh, one of my quotes again I say you know one of well it's not actually one of my quotes but it's a phrase I say you know one of my favorite things about the past is it's over
2: (laughs) (laughs) we all agree yeah
1: but most people don't actually look at life like that and again that's no fault It's no judgment it's just the design of the the brain which is wherever we've had trials and tribulations or difficulties we tend to get stuck and it's only human nature therefore to try and avoid that happening again because it hurt you know that sucked I don't want to do that again so, you know, now the brain has sort of got this, this peripheral threat mechanism up, which is looking for that same event and trying to avoid it, which means you're actually perpetually living in your history. And then people, again, wonder why they're exhausted. So being present is the precursor to actually then being able to create. If you're not present, then you can't create because you're too busy basically in your own thought processes trying to overcome things that are actually out of your control.
2: One of your uh, brilliant quotes that I think I actually included in my book, uh, past, hurt, informs, future, fear. Yes. That just rings true. And it's something that we should all tattoo on our arms because it is, as you said, it's just so easy to fall back into that. And you work with a lot of athletes and, you know, as you talk a lot, we are all our own athlete in our own movie.
0: Yeah, There's this
2: one particular story and I'd love to kind of talk on this point of fear. What you were essentially able to help him face his fear and then dissolve it. And I'd really just love to kind of focus on that to a point. We all have fears, like where do they come from and how on earth do we reduce our fears?
1: I think fear is an inherent part of being human. You know, any organism, I would assert its primordial intention is survival. You know, it doesn't matter whether you're a fly Around you know buzzing around the room, hitting the window, trying to get out, and you go near it to try and get it, and it wants to avoid you know being killed. Well, it's the same with a human being, and so fear is a very deep primal pattern of any organism because there was a time where literally stepping out of your cave was a potential life or death situation. <laughs> there were these big you know whatever it might be bears, saber tooth tigers that were a potential real threat to our existence, right? So fear, even in our physiology, if we look at our autonomic nervous system, we have something called the sympathetic nervous system and the parasympathetic. Now sympathetic, most people more commonly hear of as fight or flight. So fight or flight or freeze is actually part of our central nervous system like you can't quote unquote get rid of it because it's actually hardwired in and it's a beautiful system because it has its place, right? So if you are in a situation that truly does warrant some you know concern and self-protection, well, then the sympathetic nervous system is going to facilitate, you know, dumping adrenaline and cortisol into your bloodstream so that your eye pupils open, you have a better sense of your surroundings, your muscles become a little bit stronger. Things like digestion are no longer that important. That's a built-in system of the hardware of being a human that is a wonderful asset to have in any potentially threatening situation. So the way I look at fear is it's less about trying to get rid of it, and it's more about making space for it. So many of your listeners, I will assume, are parents. And when a child is upset or scared, if their child comes into the room and they've hurt themselves or they're scared about something that they have to do at school or something they heard or saw, I would hope that the parent's natural inclination is to want to embrace the child, to hold the child, to love the child, to reassure the child. They didn't say get rid of the fear. They actually went the other way around, which was to embrace the fear. So to me, the real, quote unquote, elixir for fear is love and reassurance. Now, the practice is to bring that to ourselves because we've got our own conditioning as part of our subconscious based on whatever we went through during our childhood. It doesn't have to be extremely traumatic. It can be pretty benign, but every human being is nonetheless going to have whatever they went through that created as you quoted my quote of like past hurt informs future fear, wherever we got hurt, the brain designed, as I said, to predict and protect is now going to be on the lookout for that same event to try and avoid it. That's just the bubble of fear. But if we can recognize, oh, okay, well, what I went through is what I went through. That's got nothing to do with today. And that event likely will never be repeated again, you know, because most of the things we go through our childhood are pretty unique to being children. And so, for that reason, perhaps I can bring more love and compassion to the part of me that was hurt, but simultaneously recognize, again, through trust, that that's not something for me to be defined by anymore. And then the fear itself starts to dissipate. The child that is held and reassured, sort of metaphorically, tends to fall asleep in your arms. So, in the presence of love and reassurance, our fears tend to do the same thing they tend to fall into a beautiful slumber and they don't bother you anymore
2: can you share an example of maybe of two ways then to using some of the athletes that you've worked with one person who refuses to kind of almost like fight against their fear and another practical example of how you would actually embrace your fear and kind of like lead with compassion and what the two different outcomes look like
1: For the first one, we just need to look at life, right? People are fighting their fears all day. (laughs) So we've got millions of examples of how fighting fear doesn't work. It's, It's aggression, it's hostility, it's animosity, it's anger. It's all the conflict we see, the division that, you know, we could say is being manipulated by, you know, the propaganda of mainstream media and politics where they're wanting to create separation because a system that is unified is very powerful. Whereas, you know, the whole divide and conquer. So there we're seeing where fear is, you know, the precursor to disharmony and disease. Like dis-ease, I use as a word a lot. The absence of ease is the precursor to physiological, societal, emotional disease, right? So that's omnipresent, sadly. That's the nature of society right now is the fight against fear. And without sounding too pollyanna you know, this is why I'm a stand for love, for kindness, for compassion, That's a society that would function, that would work, where people would be healthy. But healthy people don't need sick care systems and pharma drugs. So there's a big conflict there where these companies want to keep people sick. It's not like obviously spoken about overtly because that would be, you know, people would then wake up and go, well, hang on a minute, that doesn't make sense. You know, but that's where the health and the vitality of a human being is under constant attack. From the people that profit from people not being well, which is very sad to say. But as people wake up and go, well, hang on a minute, for myself, I've maybe had in 20 years, you know, a dozen Advil or Paracetamol, whatever you like, that's not going to sustain a business, right? If you think about the math there, I'm not even having one pharmaceutical drug a year. And it's very benign, one, you know. So the degree to which people are healthy and vital, that's not good for business. Now it's good for society, right? So what we have right now is a vicious cycle of people are in a state of dis ease. They're at each other's throats, and that is the vitriol that keeps everything as its status quo, which is a dysfunctional society. It's absolute insanity when you look at it. What I am hoping to inspire, and many, many millions of people are on board, like yourself and people who get it, is, again, it's not about sort of this, you know, kumbaya kind of approach of like, oh, all, let's all love each other. No, this things to work out. doesn't mean we all have to agree on everything. But at least let's start taking care of ourselves, each other, and the planet, as opposed to poisoning ourselves, each other, and the planet, right? That, that's distinctly two different worlds. That's one example is current society. The other example, yeah, I can use many of my athletes. One that comes to mind is um, a baseball player is kind of comical for me as a Brit, never played baseball, never watched baseball. And one of my buddies from England growing up is like, so what are you telling them, Pete? (laughs) Keep your eye on the ball. (laughs) (laughs) So, but this gentleman, he had struggled. And again, I'm guessing most of your audience is from England, so I'll break it down a little bit. But the big hitters in baseball which typically get about 25 to 35 home runs in a season. The smaller guys who have, they have different utilities in the game, they might get six to seven. And this guy that I was helping, this client, he was sort of middle of the road, strong dude, but he wasn't the big hitter and he certainly wasn't the small. So he would average maybe 15 to 16 home runs during the course of a season. We were in the second season, and he'd almost gone the span of an entire season, albeit spread across two seasons. If that makes sense, so about seventy-five percent of the previous season, and now getting close to a quarter of the first, se- the second season, where he hadn't had a home run, and it was, you know, understandably really upsetting him, and he was starting to get teased by his teammates because that's what you know guys do in a in a locker room, and um, it was just starting to irk him. So. That was where the fear, so he was going up to the plate, and the expression we use is he's trying to get seven runs off a home run, which is impossible, right? You're trying to overachieve as a compensation for what you haven't done, and it's nonsensical. You can't do it, literally. So I took him to a space to dissipate the fear where I said to him, this was the line, I said, if I told you that for the rest of your career, and he probably still had a good six, seven years of his career, so you know, substantial time as a professional athlete. I said, if I told you for the next six to seven years, you're not going to hit a home run ever again. Now, I don't want that for you, but I'm introducing to, that is a possibility in the realm of all possibilities. Could you be okay with that? Again, the caveat, I'm not saying that's what you want. I'm not saying that's what I want for you. But could you find a sense of acceptance that that might happen? And it took him a minute to sit with it because obviously every fiber in his body is like, no, I don't want that. That's terrible. But then he got to the space psychologically where he's like, yeah, I guess I could be okay with that. I contributed many ways to the sport and my team. And if I didn't get a home run for the next six, seven years, I guess I could be okay with that. At that moment, he discovered freedom. Because, see, the fear is that because he hadn't had a home run for like close to a season, spanning two seasons, the fear is what? That that's going to be perpetuated. It's going to continue. And so by actually clearing his future for him and being okay with what we could call worst case scenario. Again, I teach a lot of my athletes, if you're okay with the worst case scenario, you've no longer got anything to fear. Because you've already integrated and rationalized whatever it is that you might have previously been concerned about. So why it's a powerful story is because, first of all, I was new to the sport. I was just using the principles of the power of the mind and freeing yourself. And we were playing, no one probably gives a a hoot, but, you know, we were playing St. Louis, Cardinals, a strong team, his second at bat, boom, home run. Wow because he now was at peace with whether that happened or not. He was no longer in the fight over trying to overcome a history that was further evidence of what he hadn't done. That's back to neutral, clean slate, new day. I, I don't know what's going to happen. For that reason, it opens up all possibilities. So that story and why I love sports is because it's something everyone can relate to. They can superimpose that story on their own circumstances right now. What is it that I'm concerned about in the future that hasn't happened yet that puts me in a state of resistance right now, which is the inhibitor to the very thing that I say I want?
2: It's so powerful. And it speaks to how much at the real root of your work is compassion and love. Another thing is somebody was interviewing you and they completely fucked up their introduction. And I fuck up my introductions usually most of the time. To honest, it was a miracle this one went smoothly. <laughs> and obviously he was really embarrassed and he said, don't worry, that is just a sign you care. Yeah, And I just thought, oh God, that is such a nice point. When you care about something, it can sometimes sabotage your performance. Yeah, What are your thoughts on that between kind of, That delicate line between caring, worrying, important energy, but also not allowing it to like spill over to then fucking up your performance, but also being compassionate at the same time.
1: Yeah, it's a great, and I remember that interview very well with Craig, but it was a powerful, you know, conversation for me to be able to hold a space of love for him, that it was just, as you said, a reflection of the fact that he really wanted to get it right, which is, it's okay. It's okay that you're scared. It's okay that you messed up. It embraces your humanity. Everyone can relate to that. Again, for me, the pursuit of perfection is completely and utterly nonsensical because there's no such thing. You know, It's embracing our flaws because that's where we can all relate. So how do we, as you said, sort of, merge those and you 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 said it without maybe even knowing it maybe you've just listened to so much of my information it's already part of your your subconscious but the distinction I teach is the difference between caring and worrying. And I, you know, I'm categorically clear that I'm one of the most caring human beings you're ever going to meet. It's really my nature. And I would assert it's everybody's nature, but caring gets covered with and it gets compromised by the mind and the brain. And then we slip into worry. So if I care, you know, doing this talk, I'm not saying that everything I'm going to say is perfect or how I might want to say it, or some of your viewers might not necessarily agree with everything I say. And and that's okay. But I'm not going to worry about it because I feel very self-assured that I'm coming from a place of care that I truly want to make a loving impact and facilitate somebody and whatever they're struggling with right now. Do I have all the answers to everything that they're facing? Of course not. But if all they got was somebody who listened from a position of kindness, of compassion, without even dealing with circumstance, that invariably is itself curative. It's healing, right? Oftentimes, look at relationships, why they don't work, and especially for the woman usually is because women are very self-expressed. They know how to touch into their feelings. And the man invariably, again, these are broad statements. They're not accurate. But, you know, as a general theme, men don't know how to listen. It's not that they're curing anything or they're fixing anything, which of course is the first go-to for most men. It's really, they're just holding a space and going, honey, you know what? I totally get it. I'm so sorry you had a shitty day. I really see that that's really hurt your feelings. Like that for a woman is like, holy shit, I love that man. Cause he just got me like, didn't, didn't, you know, buy me a diamond necklace. Didn't like go out and fix the gate that I've been on about. Didn't take the trash out. He just listened. That's an expression of caring. And one of the things that I speak to a lot, you know, my relationship workshop I just did is to help people to understand the power of just listening is itself an expression of caring and love. To get someone's reality doesn't mean you agree with it, doesn't mean you want them to stay there, it doesn't mean you condone whatever happened to get them upset, but I'm here with you, I'm holding a space of love and compassion because I care and I want to understand what it's like for you and your current reality.
2: I want to dive into relationships. And just before I do, I would love to bring up something. You also says the ego wants, doesn't want to be healed. It wants to be held. Yes. And I think this is, again, a really nuanced distinction. Because often I think we want to fix and actually that feeling of being held. And I would just love for us to discuss that a bit further.
1: Yeah, I mean, I spoke to it earlier, sort of giving the analogy of holding a baby that's upset, you know, if the baby feels safe, if the baby feels loved, if the baby feels secure and reassured, then there's peace. And in a state of peace, everybody can relax, you go into parasympathetic, you know, I was talking about the nervous system, which is rest and uh, digest and rejuvenate versus fight and flight and freeze. So when I'm using that expression, the ego doesn't want to be healed. It wants to be held, it's really speaking to that, which I said earlier, like when we're in a state of fear, it's not trying to dismiss it. So many people like got to get rid of the ego and the ego's terrible and fix the ego and ignore your thoughts and get rid of the negativity. Like that's all very hostile language. And that's really speaking to what do you call it, you're in a child or whatever you want to refer to it. You know, that child type dialogue and narrative, which really is the residual from things that never got attended to as a child is actually still asking to be held i i talk about abuse and it's a very strong word but to me you know most people are brought up in an abusive environment and you know this might be jarring for people to hear because i'm not saying that people were hit or they were sexually assaulted but even if a child is dismissed and it doesn't mean literally it could be just not listened to that's an abusive situation now again That's a very broad term use of, you know, the word abuse. But to me, when there isn't that love and holding, that child is going to feel it like there's something wrong with me. I'm not wanted. I did something bad. And that itself is going to create a protective mechanism whereby now that child doesn't feel fundamentally safe. Again, this is for something for people to chew on because it really is, it can be confronting, but it's also very empowering when you see, wow, a lot of people might say my parents were, you know, loving and they certainly weren't. They never hit me. And, you know, dad would raise his voice sometimes. And you you could sort of somewhat normalize the environment of the child and how we grew up as like, oh, it was, it was totally fine. It was nice. But if you were to really recount, and sometimes we can't remember these events because they're a bit jarring the times that you were dismissed, you were scolded, even if it was by a look or a word, not necessarily physically, then that creates a somewhat normalized response so that in relationships, when that now occurs in a grown adult relationship, where your partner is dismissing you or speaking derogatory towards you, it sort of becomes normalized because that's what we're accustomed to. And I'm not expecting everybody out there to be these like masterful lovers I'd like to help facilitate that society where we do listen and we care and we have compassion. But it's, I think it is incumbent upon people to recognize where have I learned to tolerate the abuse that again, they may not be using the word abuse, but it might be just simple abandonment. It might be just neglect. It might be the feeling of, you know, derogatory language. It might be the feeling of like you don't quite feel safe because your partner is getting very angry like where have we learned that that's normal and there's a lot of work to do of course to get to the point where that isn't tolerated But at least I'd like to throw it out there so people can perhaps work towards it.
2: (laughs) And this brings me so nicely on to talk about relationships, because you have changed people's lives through your online courses. And there's one in particular. It's just extraordinary what people say after having completed it. Why was it a relationship that you really wanted to focus a lot of your time on trying to help people with?
1: I mean, one, it's the number one request I get, you know, for help from people, regardless of if I'm working with a billionaire, a professional athlete, a celebrity, or, you know, anyone between who's just got an average day job. The number one topic that we cover is relationships, because they are the foundation, I would say they are the precursor to your experience of life is the quality of your relationships. There's not one human being on the planet, who doesn't have some form of relationship doesn't have to be romantic it's certainly they're going to have some kind of parents, even if they were given up and they're adopted, or they have foster care parents, or, you know, you have a friend, you have someone you work with, like, and then of course, there's the whole gamut of what does it mean to be in a loving, quote, unquote, romantic relationship. So to me, relationships really are the cornerstone of everyone's experience. And if the quality of your relationships are not good, then the quality of your life, ipso facto factor is equally not going to be good, right? So when you understand that the very nature of the human experience is based on the laws of relativity to relate right even if it's not with a person you have a relationship with a pet you know your dog your cat your budgerigar whatever it is you have a relationship to your environment you have a relationship to your home if your home is in disarray if the kitchen sink is full of garbage your closet your wardrobe is full of clothes that are old, and you can't access or find things you want, if your relationship to money is dysfunctional, because you have a deep seated sense of lack of self worth, or you were told money doesn't grow on trees, and whatever narrative you're stuck within, these are all relationships to every arena of our life. So even though, you know, it might seem like my relationship workshop is about romantic relationships, it's about the domain of relating itself. And how to be powerful. Why do relationships not work? And how can we create powerful relationships that do work? And for that reason, up-level and enhance every arena of our life.
2: One particular point I think is really interesting when it comes to relationships is this conflict that can arise between who's right and who's wrong. Yeah. (laughs) Um, And this notion of right and wrong. Yeah. What are your thoughts on right and wrong and why is it a little bit of an illusion, I guess?
1: (laughs) It's sort of almost as primal as what I was saying earlier about fight or flight and fear, you know? It's just the human persona garners value by having a sense of justification about its own perspective. If you really unpack what I just said, there's a lot in that, right? So again, you know, one of my quotes, I say, Being right is the poor man's version of self-worth. Now, when people really get that, it's kind of ugly, you know, that if I'm that desperate to be right, and on the uglier side of it is make someone else wrong, you know, it's one thing to be self-righteous. It's another thing to be judgmental and critical to try and garner some sense of value. But when you really look at it, it's like, oh, God, is that really who I've become, that I'm so desperate for some semblance of self-value that I have to find someone to bully, pick on, make wrong or criticize? It's human for, again, that reason we come from compassion. Everyone's doing the best they can within the limits of their awareness and their conditioning. And let's all grow up and realize that, you know, making somebody wrong is not only inaccurate because... It's not about wrong or right. It's about what works for me. And okay, you have your perspective. That's fine. But I can allow someone to have their perspective and not have to make them wrong. It might not mean that it's somebody that I want to date or have to my house or invite over for Christmas, you know? but people are going to have their different perspectives. You know, there's a lot of people out there who might enjoy Drinking a lot of alcohol. That's not wrong. That's just where they're at. I, you know, I had my fair share of cocktails when I was in college and uni, uh, and that's where I was at. And then I sort of grew out of that and realized, well, I don't want to poison myself anymore. Something as benign as my friends might want to go out and they're like, hey, come and join us for dinner. Like, it'd be great to see you. And I'm like, "Okay, what time are you going? And they'll say, you know, we're we're having dinner at seven o'clock or 730 or maybe even eight or nine. Whatever it is that to many people is very reasonable to have dinner at that time. But that doesn't work for me because I'm more like a yogi guy, you know, and I'll get up at four. But for that reason, I'm not going to have dinner at seven or eight at night. It doesn't work, but there's no judgment. So anyway, the whole realm of wrong and right is really it's just the world of duality that, uh, as I said, unfortunately, is so commonplace and if people could learn to listen to each other and go okay I don't necessarily agree with what you say but I'm not going to make you wrong about it and I think where it becomes even more insidious is when it's applied to children it's one thing to say wrong or right it's when the emotion of discipline is added to it like it's not only what you did was wrong but you're wrong and bad that becomes super detrimental to the evolution of a human being's possibility so It gets very slippery in that realm.
2: Do you think it's just because we've been so unconditioned to even be able to live harmoniously in a place that doesn't have fixed opinions? We kind of live in a world that encourages us to have an opinion on something. And really what you're advocating for is to be comfortable with having to live a life that you've got to be fixed on anything.
1: Yeah, I think what comes to mind is it opens up the idea of exploration, curiosity. If you look at a child, you know, what is the number one word and question they pose is why? Why, mommy? Why, daddy? Like, there's a natural curiosity that I believe is an extension of the human spirit. We're here to explore. And I think if we become too steadfast in our beliefs, you know, you start to see it in people as they get older. There's not only the rigidity of mind that becomes the rigidity of body, you know, where people have become stuck. Whereas a child is so pliable, but for that reason, they're also very gullible. So I think understanding the difference between remaining open, remaining curious, and fascinated by the mystery of life, that mindset invariably is much more open. And available to allowing other people to have their opinions versus if you think no, this is the way it is. And we see this in older generations, you know, people become so stuck in their ways that this is the way it has to be done. Like the number of people I work with who might have some completely asinine story about like they they struggle with eating in front of people because they they might make noise with their mouth in the way they eat or they slurp too loud or because they grew up in an environment where their parents said, don't make noise at the dinner table. You know, I can even remember my dad who loved the hell out of me. He's like, you know, he had this expression. He said, all joints on the table shall be carved, you know, Sunday roast, very typical English. But if the kids had their elbows on the table, you know, you kind of heard about it in a playful way. It wasn't like, you know, my, my household, it wasn't like serious discipline, but that we could argue is a perspective that is confining. And I I, I, listen, I'm all for like, you know, politeness and cordial behavior. And but I'm also like, I just know I'm a loving dude. And if I like swear every now and again, or like people who are open are going to be less offended than somebody who's like, this is the way it's got to be. And that's a form of constraint and limitation, which invariably is the compromise of the boundlessness of the human spirit. So That's what I'm busting open, not because there's anything wrong with it, but my assertion is as human beings, we want to experience the joy of our own limitlessness.
2: Absolutely. And I know we've run out of time, but I was hoping I could just squeeze in one last question, which really is um, to ask you who your teachers are, because you're a teacher to, you know, as I mentioned, so many millions around the world, but. I imagine every teacher has their teachers. And so who was really your inspiration and who's taught you and who's had the most profound effect on your life?
1: Gosh, uh, I mean, I think to start, you know, without sounding too trite, you know, probably my parents in ways that I didn't fully understand because I was so young when they both passed. But I think in in a way that I wasn't fully aware of, they were teaching me what love looked like. Now, as a kid, I didn't grow up in another family, so I had no To my point earlier, points of relativity, I couldn't compare and go, oh, well, these parents are much more loving than the other parents that I'm sort of in this dualistic life living with. Like you don't have that multiple dimension experience. I only know what I know. Likewise, a kid growing up in an environment that's very hostile doesn't actually know that until maybe they go and spend time at a friend's and the parents are very loving and kind to them. And they're like, wow, this is different than my house. So. I think that was probably my first great education was just my parents who were very loving and they adored me uh, for however brief a period they were on this planet with me. And then I would say, you know, a series of different teachers. Uh, Krishnamurti was a traditional Indian guru, you know, and he spoke about non-duality. So when I found his books, I was probably like early 20s. And even prior to that, I want to give credit and acknowledgement to a friend of mine at uni a guy called guy a bloke called guy who uh he and i would sit under the trees in the sort of quintessential buddhist type way not that we had anything to do with buddhism but you know we were talking about the big questions like why are we here what's the meaning of life and you know he was quite pivotal in inspiring some of these dialogues for me that did stick with me you know that's like a young buck of 18 19 years old so that was impactful in my own journey And then Krishnamurti, and then I really got into a lot more of the traditional gurus and uh, what's called Advaita Vedanta, non-dualism, through Ramana Maharshi, and then Srinasa which is a mouthful. But he's one of my favorites because, you know, I have a lot of tough love (laughs) with the people I work with because I adore them. But I just, I'm like, you know, pull your head out of your ass and stop being a baby, you know, but I get to a position where I I feel the liberty to be able to speak to them like that. But they respond so beautifully, because they know I care about them. And this particular teacher, Sagarata, he was just, he was almost angry with his teachings, you know, but you know, it was because he's like, what the hell's wrong with you? Like, get over it. There's no problem out there. You know, it was just, It was comical in the way that he was like, not very traditional, like, oh, yes, it's okay, you know, like sort of more maternal instinct. He was just like, hey, just get on with it. If you want to create an amazing life, stop being a baby and coming up with excuses. So he was certainly a great teacher. So and then I would say life, you know, all of the trials and tribulations of which I faced many um, that challenged me, that made me feel scared, that made me feel inadequate, only to realize they never did make me feel any of those things, they were really revealing where I already had those perceptions of myself inside of me. And so they taught me to recognize the lie of my own inadequacy, the lie of my own insecurity, such that I could step outside of that and uh, discover the world of freedom and, and hopefully today and with those that I get to speak to inspire others to do the same
2: absolutely and if there's nothing else you do today but follow peter on instagram and i'll put uh, the link in the show notes and also check out uh, the relationships course it is truly truly life-changing stuff i just wish we all had a peter crone class when we were about six years old every <laughs> single week until we were 18 i think we'd would be very different humans but thank you so much
1: thank you my dear you too lovely to connect
2: thank you for listening it would be a huge support if you wouldn't mind rating subscribing and sharing this podcast i also would love to hear from you so please find me at poppy jamie on instagram dm me and i would love to hear your thoughts on any of the topics that we discuss download happy not perfect my app that's designed to boost your mood and help you sleep and give you mindfulness in less than five minutes it's packed full of science-backed tools and rituals to give your mind the care it needs sending lots of love and energy see you next time Hold
0: up